Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Hey, Rob, what's up? Uh, well, I just had to, I was just watching MSNBC. I had to turn it off. Just, uh, why? Really frustrating. And let me just say, Robbie Needy Drinky, right oh, about boy. now. Okay. It's one of those days. I don't know if you saw this. I saw Bernie Sanders was out there. Oh, that guy. Yeah. You know, we, I think we, everyone knows how we feel about that. And just, it was really, really frustrating. You see him out there. And, you know, he's, he's once again going off on the same old stuff about like how, you know, Americans are, you know, dealing with this economic crisis, quote unquote, they need, mm-hmm. uh, they need checks, they need $1,200 checks. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're unable to feed their families, they're being evicted from their homes, and just kind of this kind of complainy thing. And just, you know, it was really frustrating to see this when especially when you take into consideration the fact that, you know, over his several decades uh, in Congress, in the Senate, how many bills has Bernie Sanders passed? What, like eight? Something like that? Right? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's something paltry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like, what are you even, what are you doing, old man? What are you talking about this stuff for? I just can't, you know, I can't, I can't stand that. It just frustrated me. Yeah. No, I understand. I think um, he could probably get more post offices renamed. Uh, I think it would be more impressive if we saw some public private partnerships from him. All these sorts of things that you know typical members of Congress do at the behest of lobbyists and special interests that would appeal to uh, you know corporate interests on both sides. If we saw more you know more activity from him in that regard, I'd be more willing to take his his cries for uh, you know checks, free money, giveaways, handouts, if you will. Yeah, uh, a lot more serious. Well, yeah, and he doesn't obviously typical with Bernie Sanders and the kind of like you know socialist left that we had, we're dealing with often it doesn't take into effect that like you know he's he's advocating for like universal twelve hundred dollar checks and like doesn't he know that like some rich people might get that right yeah. people that don't exactly. deserve it obviously that's not part of it uh, that's not part of his reasoning you know I I know you and I agree that like we, that's the reason that we can never in the United States advocate for anything good to happen because um, then rich people will get it too. Exactly. And that's, that wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be fair at all. Yeah. I mean, if imagine if a rich person got $1,200. Yeah. How life-changing that would be for them. They don't yeah. deserve that. They should work for it. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's important to point that out. Yeah. And also, I mean, the, there's more important things happening right now. Bernard. Right. Bernard Sanders. Like, did you see people were being mean to Jill Biden? Dr. Jill Biden. Yeah, it distracts, it distracts from stories like that that are of the utmost importance. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so upset on her behalf that she has to deal with these toxic bros, uh, not referring to her by her title. That is certainly the most important thing that we could be talking about right now. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, once again, jeers. Yes, jeers. To uh, Bernard Sanders. Um, for for going out there and and talking about you know giving people uh, financial assistance in a uh, in a global pandemic, then an economic crisis, really unbelievable stuff. And do you have a do you have a Cheers? What what do you think the Cheers is this week? I think Cheers could even be to Stephanie Rule, the uh, former Credit Suisse banker. Yes, who, who led well, she put him in his place. Company, yeah, she led the company in credit derivatives uh, sales one year. In the run-up to the financial crash, and you know, that's never mind that that was one of the, the biggest instruments in, in causing the collapse. 
or also, you know, the ethical concerns around her being a paid spokesperson for Chase Bank up until October of this year. Uh, I don't think we should pay attention to any of that because she is a girl boss who stood her ground against uh, Bernard Sanders. That's and that queen is, behavior. Yeah, that's right. We want to celebrate that. So cheers to Stephanie Rule, the Wall Street talking, uh, talking head. Yeah. And before we continue with this episode of The Insurgents, it is brought to you by Chase Bank as well. So... Okay, hello. Hello, everyone. Hello and welcome. Uh, it's The Insurgents, episode 51. This is Rob Rousseau here. Hey, Rob, this is Jordan Yule. How are you? Hey, man. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing all right. That's great. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to get to. There's a lot to get to um, in this episode. We, uh, we had a really great conversation with Liliana Segura uh, of The Intercept, uh, who focuses heavily on uh, criminal justice and the death penalty. There's, of course, this really uh, this important story that, that played out this week of the Brandon Bernard execution. Uh, it was really fascinating to get her to break that down for us, the details of the case, uh, why it became such a big news story over the last week, and, and you know, being able to draw larger implications about the, the American criminal justice system, the death penalty. Really, really interesting conversation uh, that we had with, with Liliana. Yeah, yeah, I think... I mean, it's great that that story, you know, got the recognition it did and got the coverage it did. But it's important to people for people to understand like the cruelty uh, in capital punishment and in our criminal justice system, uh, especially for people like Brandon who were charged right uh, in coming to uh, adulthood. He was eighteen and he was an accomplice. So Liliana uh, helped us go on a pretty deep dive into the facts of the case extenuating circumstances, the regret from his jury, the efforts his lawyers made. Like it was a really, really comprehensive overlook of the case. I, I really appreciated that conversation. Yes. Uh, so I think everyone's going to enjoy that. Before we get to Liliana, there's a couple things that I wanted to mention here. And I think number one, I had to get your perspective on this. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you probably know what I'm going to ask about here. Uh, but there was this kind of heated debate online, which I, I very foolishly waded into, and I got to have my fucking head examined for even thinking uh, that that was a oh, good idea. Dear. But I'm, I'm very interested to get your perspective on this, which is the current suggestion by certain sort of uh, progressive commentators that um, in exchange for um, voting for uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, to continue her leadership with the Democratic Party, that like progressive uh, Democratic congressman like AOC and the sort of the, you know, the squad and her, her sort of companions there. Um, the suggestion is that they should hold off on voting for Pelosi to try and extract some concessions. And the idea here is to uh, force Pelosi to agree to a floor vote uh, for Medicare for all. I've seen a number of perspectives on this on both sides, and like I've seen people that I that we like, um, and people that have been on the show. Kyle Kalinsky has weighed in on this. Uh, we heard from like people like Brianna Joy Gray on this, who have been you have made a pretty uh, case that I find is pretty interesting about why this would be a, a valuable tactic. We can get into that a little bit, but I, I'm interested to hear your perspective on this because I'm sure you've been following this. What do you think about this plan? And um, when, 
let's let's get you canceled as well as, as what i'm saying yeah i'm gonna yeah, drag yeah, you please, down into the into the muck with me please do not cancel me um <laughs> but i okay so first i think it's they're not going to kind of telegraph where they're voting just yet if they don't <laughs> if they don't vote for her what blows is gonna okay fine like what like, yeah it, 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 to my knowledge no one else has thrown their hat in the ring to even challenge her so who are they gonna vote for yeah um, there's no alternative right now that I know of, which is its own issue. I mean, that is fucking yes. upsetting for people. Yes. I, I understand and why people past, are frustrated with that. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I agree. And I do think, I think someone else should be, should be a majority leader or speaker rather. But so the argument is they will only vote for her for speaker. If Medicare for all is brought to the floor for a full, you know, floor vote that. Uh, I think what they want out of that is this is an effort to hold Democrats who oppose it and Republicans feet to the fire on opposing it. And then they start to have these conversations around, oh, these people don't support this policy that will make your your life measurably better. I understand that desire, but in, in, in practice, what you're going to do is just create a, a moment for corporate media and opponents and detractors to be like, look, overwhelming opposition to this policy because people in Congress don't necessarily reflect the the general political will of the body politic. So this is a, I think, a doomed strategy. And you only you only risk upsetting Pelosi, who is notoriously vengeful, and also when reelected, selects committee assignments. And within that, uh, there's power. So I, I don't understand this this idea, and I think it's just easy for people who, who rant on YouTube and rant on Twitter all day to prognosticate over how this this effort would go. Yeah. Okay. So the kind of the argument that I'm that that people that I I happen to agree with on a lot of stuff have been making about this, um, which is I'm I'm kind of interested in it. I mean, I made my feelings clear on this. And by the way, I should preface this by saying that no one should be above reproach. Um, especially no one in the fucking Democratic Party, not AOC or Ilhan Omar or any of these like legislators that like we actually like who we see as doing good things. Uh, they should absolutely face pressure and criticism and all that stuff. Um, I pointed out, yeah, and like you mentioned on Twitter that they, they, you know, for all the criticism that like, oh, they're they're refusing to kind of make a power play, they're refusing to go against the establishment. Well, I think backing Bernie Sanders was that power play. That was a pretty bold move to try and kind of seize control of the party apparatus. And that didn't work. Um, so that's not, that's not an excuse to not continue trying, but I was just kind of pointing out that like, well, they, they have really been trying to kind of wrestle that power away. It's not really the easiest, uh, line to walk. Um, but the argument that people have been making is just that even if this vote, this theoretical vote, uh, were to uh, proceed and it would obviously would be voted down, like everyone seems to be aware of that, but it's like, um, it would expose people within the Democratic Party and get them on the record for like not supporting this this broadly popular policy, which polls pretty well. And I think my thinking was that like, um, okay, well, don't we know already that they're opposed to this policy? Like, is that really telling us anything that we don't already know? The one guy that supported this policy, the Democratic Party came together to ensure that he wouldn't be the nominee for that exact reason, because they don't support it. Um, but others have pointed out that there's polling that suggests that 
there's many people that voted for Joe Biden that do believe that he supports that kind of thing. And they do believe that is that is like a, a policy that the Democratic Party supports. So perhaps it would like illuminate the fact that this is like a contradiction um, and that they, they don't support it. It would highlight, you know, certain certain Democrats for for being against uh, helping people uh, during this like health crisis that giving them giving them uh, health care. And then that would like open them up to like primaries and would, you know, create this kind of situation where there's it creates more awareness of the fact that like that this is a party that doesn't really support these broadly popular policies. Do you think like is there merit to that? Because, like, again, there's people that I that I agree with a lot making this kind of argument. Uh, sure. Sort of. I think um, part of those arguments can be made elsewhere, uh, whether it's through you know, communications from members like other Democrats, whether it's through, uh, you know, organizations and, and causes and coalitions that support like Medicare for all caucus, even in, in Congress that Pramila Jayapal uh, launched and spearheads. It could also be made through, you know, progressive and independent media like Young Turks, shows like this, uh, Jacobin. You know, all these other outlets and, and places where people support these efforts, there are there's space and gains to be made in shifting public opinion on this issue. And also within that, targeting Democrats and Republicans who oppose this. So I think what they want is, and I agree with them, you want to put these people on the defensive, make them actively go out and say, no, I don't support this policy. I get that and I agree with you. Yeah. The way to do that isn't to play chicken with Pelosi, who's notorious eventual in this moment where you don't really have the leverage that people think they have. That's it. It's it's a pretty difficult moment to do that. And I think that I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Jimmy Dore doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh boy, well that's it. I, I think I made made my feelings on this pretty clear. Uh, people kind of thought I was becoming a sellout lib or a Biden bro for for pointing this out. Um, but at the same time, like I honestly really do understand and get why people are extremely frustrated and why they're pissed off at the Democratic Party establishment and want them to just like stand for something and want to kind of put them on the spot like this. Uh, I do completely get that kind of impulse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as you as you pointed out, it's the question of whether this specific strategy is the is the ideal way to do that. It's not like doing this really gets anyone in the United States closer to having uh, single payer health care. Uh, it's more of kind of a rhetorical uh, move, which, like you're pointing out, can be made elsewhere. Um, right. So um, yeah, basically, this is a pro sort of Biden podcast now, as you can hear from the these <laughs> answers. <laughs> <laughs> um that's that's kind of the main takeaway that i think uh -huh, people should yeah, probably have yeah. that's what we wanted yeah big time big time biden bros over here uh yeah but that was a that was a pretty heated couple of days there yeah i just uh, saw it and it was, the discourse I just, I just checked out i yeah. don't know it just it's not the place to have conversations around like legislative strategy it's very easy for people to in 280 characters make some like sweeping declarations that aren't rooted in reality or even process, you know, we're all guilty of it, but just that's not, that's not happening. And it's, it's unwise because like, again, I can't retreat. You have no leverage right now. What are you going to do? There's yeah. no alternative. She's vengeful. <laughs> you just go, all you're going to do is, is just upset someone who has a control over your committee assignments. Yeah. Good luck. And like you talk about committee assignments, like I'm reminded of, uh, <laughs> 
Um, you know, like Ilhan Omar being part of the Foreign Relations Committee and the moment where she was able to like question Elliot Abrams and stuff like that and talk about his history of, of covering up genocides in Central and South America and stuff like that. Like the, there's a real value to being having those kind of positions, um, which you kind of arbitrarily give up in this situation without getting really all that much in return. I mean, you're getting this kind of vote that happens that we, everyone knows is not going to work out. Um, and then that's, I guess that I'm not sure like what the next step is supposed to be after that. Like that's, uh, like you pointed out, there's other ways of, of pointing out that the Democratic Party does not support these policies. Uh, and I think something we can all agree on, uh, finally, which is that the Democratic Party leadership is extremely out of touch with what actual voters in the United States wants. No one would disagree on that. I mean, we've talked about this every week now for almost a year. I don't think anyone should doubt kind of where we stand on that. Uh, right. I guess it's just a question of like whether this specific strategy is the way to go. I wasn't really convinced. Um, but, um, you know, I, again, I, I do get why people are, are are frustrated. It makes total sense that people are, are trying to come up with kind of solutions to, to deal with this. Uh, the fact that, like, the Democratic Party leadership are these, like, uh, fucking dinosaurs who don't support uh, uh, any of these uh, extremely popular policies that would really help people in this in this crisis. Like, so I, I understand the frustration and where that's coming from. Yeah, I think you, you just... You negotiate for powerful committee uh, assignments now and then just turn around and then start start fighting for Medicare for all and building political will elsewhere. You're not going to do that on the house on the House floor. You're going to do it. You're going to do it in, in media. You're going to do it in your own channels. On Tw- I mean, the squad is now getting on Twitch and uh, campaigning it. There's so many other opportunities to, to do that. Um, and again, there's just no alternative. Like she's not worried about your vote because no one else is running against her. Yeah. Well, I'm sure this is not the last time we're going to be discussing this, uh, <laughs> this issue. Um, I, I appreciate getting your perspective on it though. Um, yeah. but, uh, let's just get to our interview with Liliana. Like we mentioned, uh, it was really, really productive, very, very interesting. And I think really important kind of subject matter, uh, the, talking about the America's like absolutely brutal and, and barbaric uh, capital punishment system. Uh, so let's get to that. And Liliana is going to be joining the program right after this. We have Liliana Segura with The Intercept. Liliana, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you are a senior reporter at The Intercept, and you focus on uh, prisons, um, harsh sentencing, and and most recently, uh, the death penalty. Can you give us kind of an overview uh, of your reporting and your work? Sure, yeah. So I've been at The Intercept since day one, uh, sort of since before it was uh, called The Intercept. And I came largely... um, to 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 do this kind of reporting frankly um i i've been writing about prisons and uh the legal system for for many years but one of my sort of original topics uh that i was interested in before i was really a professional journalist was was the death penalty and and there's a whole story behind that but essentially i came to this issue really through activism um first. And uh, it sort of goes back to my college days. I I got to know a number of activists who were at the time um, 
agitating around uh, people who were on death row and who had been wrongfully convicted in the state of Illinois. Um, it's kind of amazing when you reflect back, Illinois no longer has the death penalty, but at this time, um, this was uh, an issue that um, was partly rooted in a history of police brutality, of a systemic uh, regime really of police torture that had been uh, taking place throughout the 80s and 90s uh, on the south side of Chicago and other parts of Chicago. Um, these corrupt and racist uh, police officers headed up by a police commander named John Burge uh, had a habit of interrogating and brutalizing um, predominantly black men um, over the course of their investigations into into crime in, in that city. And, and this era saw a number of people uh, give false confessions, uh, saw a number of people convicted for crimes they didn't commit, and, and a number of people go to the death row for, for that. And I remember being basically in my sort of later days in college and, and finding out about this history and being completely scandalized by the fact that I had never heard this before. This was a secret, a sort of open secret in the city of Chicago for years. Uh, but it had never made the, you know, it had never been discussed in the New York Times. It had not re uh, received the kind of national coverage it should have. And that was sort of a very radicalizing moment for me. Um, and I kind of, uh, jumped right into to, to getting to know organizers who were who were doing this work um, uh, first connected to the state of Illinois and, and later um, in New York, which at the time had, had still had the death penalty on the books, even though it hadn't been used in many, many years. And so that's kind of my how I first came to this issue. Um, it it wasn't until, you know, I had uh, arrived at The Nation magazine as an intern and had been doing a little bit of advocacy around death penalty issues that I was able, uh, able to actually start writing about it. Um, and and it, it took me a while to, to be in a position to, to cover it as, as uh, journalistically as the issue that I, um, one of the issues that I focus on. Um, but, you know, I don't come to this issue with any pretense of sort of quote unquote objectivity. I write with a point of view. Um, but my kind of roots in activism have really served me well in the sense of, you know, it's oftentimes activists and especially those who are directly impacted, um, those who have loved ones on death row, those who have been exonerated from death row, those who, you know, are in, in direct touch with those communities. Um, they're the ones who know what's going on a lot of the time. And, and that has continued to be true as I've entered this phase of reporting on the federal death penalty. Well, um, that's a good segue into the main reason that we wanted to bring you onto the show today, uh, Liliana, which is that uh, the story of uh, Brandon Bernard and the execution uh, of Brandon Bernard that took place a few days ago, which kind of became a really, a really big sort of national and international story. Um, and, you know, drew a lot of people's attention to it. Do you want to just give us some background on uh, Brandon's case and, and why you think this became such a such a big story over the last couple of days and, and how it relates to uh, particularly with Donald Trump's uh, actions uh, pertaining to the death penalty on his way out the door? Sure. Yeah. So let me just preface uh, um Brandon's case with a little bit of context, which is, you know, because Brandon Bernard was the ninth person to be executed uh, by the Trump administration this year. Um, a lot of Americans, uh, for very understandable reasons, <laughs> have been uh, preoccupied with with different issues from the pandemic uh, to, you know, Trump's uh, behavior, the whole question of the future of our democracy, uh, everything that makes this year um, and these past several months uh, so chaotic and exhausting. Um, 
in the background, we've had we've had these executions that that started in July and that have continued over the course of this year and culminated in uh, two executions last week. Um, the first of which was Brandon Bernard, and the second of which was Alfred Bourgeois, and they were nine and number nine and number ten, uh, respectively. Um, I've traveled to Terre Haute for every single one of these executions. Um, it's it, it, I can drive there from where I live in Nashville. It takes about four hours. Um, and the reason I think it's important is because, you know, for the sort of lack of, of national coverage um, that most of these executions have gotten, um, when you're there, when you're standing alongside activists who are making noise, when you're kind of just uh, explaining to people on Twitter uh, how this how this system um, works from the ground level, uh, it, it's possible to kind of spread the word about something that's really been marginal um, on people's minds um, in, in this past year. Um, so, so the Trump administration restarted executions in July. They announced, first announced uh, Attorney General Bill Barr announced in July of 2019 that federal executions would be returned. This is something that we anticipated, those of us who pay attention to this issue, anticipated the moment that Trump was elected. We knew this guy was, you know, very enthusiastic about the death penalty. Uh, he's on record as sort of a death penalty true believer, and he was going to uh, install an AG who felt the same way. And if there was anything surprising, it was that it took this long uh, for the Trump administration to decide to move forward with, with um, setting execution dates. Um, prior to this year, the last federal execution had taken place in 2003. Uh, and before that, you know, there, there had only been three in the kind of modern death penalty era as we know it. Um, there was the execution of Timothy McVeigh in 2001 and then two, two others. And then executions stopped for, for a variety of reasons, um, uh, not the least of which was that we didn't really have a good um, mechanism for carrying them out. There's been a lot of problems with lethal injection, a lot of litigation, a lot of uh, drug shortages, and we can talk about that or not. Um, but essentially, we get to this point in 2019 where Bill Barr finally says, okay, we're going to we're gonna bring. We're gonna restart execution dates, and um, and there was a first. Uh, I believe they announced four or five guys um, had dates, and it was supposed to all begin in December of 2019, and and these dates were gonna be carried out uh, close together from 2019, from December 2019 to January 2020. Um, that did not happen. There was litigation involving again methods of execution, and so uh, death penalty lawyers were able to kind of stave off these executions uh, for a while. Uh, but in July, uh, you know, the inevitable happened, and and the Trump administration carried out three executions in one week, um, and they've continued ever since. So Brandon Bernard, um, I think that the reason that his execution finally broke through and got a lot of attention, um, well, there's a number of reasons for it. You know, for one, there's no question that his case um, stands in contrast to a lot of the previous cases of the, the guys who had um, uh, uh, been executed um, during this, this killing spree. Brandon Bernard was only 18 years old when he was convicted, or I'm sorry, when he was involved in in a crime involving uh, five teenage guys. Um, they were all black. This was in um, uh, in Texas outside of Fort Hood. Uh, and they were, uh, as we understand it, members of a local gang that was kind of loosely affiliated with or modeled after the, uh, the Bloods. And they um, essentially came up with a plan where they were going to be sort of randomly targeting um, people in the community uh, with the hope of getting 
somebody's ATM card, their PIN, whatever else they could get from them and, and extract some money. It's important to understand that the, the, the ringleader, uh, quote unquote, as we, as we know it, um, is a guy named uh, Christopher Vialva, who was 19 at the time. Um, Christopher Vialva was actually executed in September. He was um, the seventh person to be put to death um, under this, this killing spree. Um, and Christopher Vialva was also the first black man uh, to be uh, executed uh, during the course of this um, this whole thing, and uh, there are going to be several more. But th what makes, I mean, Christopher Vialva, he's in, it's important to understand his role versus Brandon Bernard's here, because Christopher Vialva, by all accounts, even though, you know, he was only 19, he was also very young. Uh, he, you know, by all accounts, among the men on death row who were his friends and neighbors, you know, kind of grew up on death row. And by the time he was executed at age 40, was no longer the same person. You know, this is a guy who had done a lot of good in his, you know, community, such as it exists on death row in Terre Haute. Um, and so, you know, there, I think there were a lot of problems with the execution of Christopher Vialba. But if we know one thing, it's that he was the person who who um, carried out the murder in this in this case. But anyway, to get back to the murder itself or the crime itself. So there's these five guys there kind of looking for somebody to, to, to rob. Um, Brandon Bernard's car is being used in this, and he's the driver in this in this plan. Um, but um, so so Christopher Vialva and two other guys approach a man named Todd Bagley. He's a 26-year-old um, who's visiting from Iowa. He's a youth minister. He and his wife are visiting family in, in Colleen, Texas. Um, and, uh, and these three guys um, ask him for a ride, kind of, uh, uh, and he agrees to give them a ride. Um, Christopher Vialva and the two other teenagers um, get into his car and uh, pull a gun on him and his wife uh, and force him to drive somewhere remote where then they then force Todd and his wife, Stacy Bagley, into their trunk. Um, they take their their ATM cards, their pin, get their pins, they take their jewelry um, and essentially, you know, really terrorize this couple, uh, driving them around. They eventually, at one point, they're trying to pawn Stacy Bagley's wedding ring. Um, it's a really awful crime. But it's important to know that at this time, while this is happening, Brandon Bernard was not there. Brandon Bernard was involved in the sort of original plot uh, to, you know, to some degree. We know it's his car. We know that he had a role to play. But he was actually um, at a convenience store playing video games um, with another guy, another of the, the, the teenagers, um, and came out to realize that, that, you know, their, their friends were gone. Um, but later, uh, Christopher Vialva calls Brandon Bernard, calls, uh, the other friend he was with and they say, Hey, we need you to come and get us. We need, we need a ride. Um, and I need you to come and, and, and we need to destroy the evidence of this crime. There's a lot of confusion, disagreement about how much, you know, whether there was any anticipation that anybody was going to get killed. It's my understanding that people did not <laughs> anticipate that there wasn't supposed to be a murder at the end of this thing. This was supposed to be a carjacking and a robbery, but regardless, um, they all end up meeting up in this remote part of Fort Hood. Um, Christopher Vialva opens the trunk and shoots Todd and Stacy Bagley in the head. And Brandon Bernard, um, as we understand it, then sets the car on fire um, under the instruction of, of, of Christopher Vialva. Uh, so it's a really ugly crime, you know, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. Uh, yeah. No question, you know, this couple suffered mightily. Um, they were, you know, they're incredibly sympathetic. Um, they are, you know, apparently they 
they were youth ministers and very, very devout and were not only begging for their life, but also telling these guys, you know, Jesus loves you and, and you're forgiven and sort of doing what they would have, you know, they, 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 till the end, they apparently were sort of trying to preach to them and minister to them and, and tell them that, you know, um, they didn't have to go through with this um, and that, you know, Jesus loves them. So, of course, this is a very shocking crime. It's the kind of crime that makes headlines. Um, it's also, you know, there's some pretty clear race dynamics um, that are that you see over and over again, especially in the 90s when it comes to capital cases. You know, these were two um, sort of <laughs> angelic white people who had come from Iowa to visit yeah. uh, and, and were um, deeply devout. And, you know, they're randomly targeted by a bunch of, you know, gang members. Uh, and and uh, even though these these teenagers were quite young, you know, Christopher Vialvo was the oldest at 19. The youngest, I believe, was 15. Um, you know, this is the, the era of the super predator. This is the era where you're seeing, you know, all the kind of rhetoric that we're now now rather you know late in the game revisiting and grappling with um this is an era where we had truth in sentencing where we had the ramping up of the death penalty at both the state and federal level and so it plays out somewhat predictably in the sense that you know somebody has to pay and they have to pay dearly um there are some things that make this case really unusual though um Christopher Bialva and Brandon Bernard were tried together. Um, I still don't quite understand why that happened I haven't had a chance to talk to their trial lawyers although I tried um and um, what makes this case especially unique, uh, especially now, is that, you know, they were tried together, um, both were found guilty, and both were sentenced to death, um, despite the fact that they had pretty, you know, pretty different roles, um, and that Brandon Bernard was significantly less culpable than Christopher Vialba. But now, years later, uh, we, we find out that of the surviving jurors who sentenced both these, these young men to die, um, five of the nine jurors eventually came out and, and, and said, you know, uh, if it were up to them now, uh, they, 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 wouldn't, they would prefer not to see Brennan Bernard um, put to death. Um, and, you know, there's sort of varying reasons for all of this. I interviewed one of the jurors who told me that, you know, from the moment he was in the jury room uh, deliberating with his fellow jurors about you know what they should do with Brandon Bernard i mean he was uncomfortable with this and confused about his role and and felt sort of ambivalent about about whether or not this was something that he should do and so i think other jurors have have uh, had a change of heart or, or, or come to to realize um, that that they made a mistake. Um, you know, they they all they don't all sort of speak in the same way about about their feelings about this case. Um, but but really critical to this case, um, apart from Brandon Bernard's age, from his lack of culpability, is also the fact that as we see commonly in these kinds of cases, um, you know, the jury didn't get the whole story. Um, first of all. There was testimony that was um, pretty misleading about what actually caused Stacey Bagley's death. Um, essentially, federal prosecutors tried to argue and sort of insinuate that Stacey Bagley might have survived this um, gunshot to the face uh, had uh, had uh, Brandon Bernard not set the car on fire. And of course, that becomes sort of an argument that essentially Brandon Bernard uh, burned her alive. It's not true. Um, she, you know, the, even the autopsy that that was discussed at the time of the trial shows that, you know, this was not a survivable gunshot wound. Um, she was unconscious. There was no suffering. But but a number of jurors were left with the impression that that she was essentially burned alive. Um, so there's that. Um, and then more recently, um, we come to discover in 2018 
that there was evidence that had been um, withheld from the defense attorneys at this trial. Um, and that evidence was pretty critical and could have been, could have really saved Brandon Bernard's life. Um, and it has to do with this gang that they were all a member of. Um, federal prosecutors tried to make the argument that because they were in a gang that Christopher Vialva and Brandon Bernard were going to pose a unique danger in federal prison. That, you know, if gang members, when they're in prison, they're gonna, you know, try to rise up in the ranks. And that means, you know, assaulting people and killing people and just sort of, that these men could not be safely um, housed uh, and they needed to be uh, put, sentenced to death and put to death. Um, uh, so this hinges on this kind of idea that, that Brandon Bernard was um, a remorseless gang member, um, except for that then we, uh, the legal team in 2018 uh, basically uncovered legal uh, documents that police had at the time that showed that Brandon Bernard was not only not a leader in this particular gang, but was sort of the lowest ranking, like was just like barely a player in this in this group of guys who who um, sort of carried out uh, this crime. And so, um, you know, for a number of reasons, I mean, that's that's a violation of his of his rights at trial. Um, and yet the courts have sort of, as we see very often, frankly, um, the courts refused to kind of grant a hearing uh, to litigate this issue. And this issue was one that um, Brandon's lawyers were trying to litigate up until the very last moment um, before he was put to death. So, you know, um, so, um, I mean, there's more to the case, but essentially, yeah, Brandon's case, uh, I think, grabbed people's attention, even who didn't know necessarily who Christopher Vialva was or that Christopher Vialva had already been put to death. But it is kind of shocking when you consider that Christopher Vialva, who was the man who shot this couple um, and was clearly responsible for their death, he was executed in September. And yet, uh, shortly after that, uh, the Trump administration decides that they also want to kill his 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 co-defendant, his accomplice, who um, you know had a relatively minor role in, in, in the crime. And so um, I think the other reason that it grabbed people's attention too, um, and which stands in contrast to, to, to some of these other guys' cases, Brandon Bernard had a legal team that put together a really extensive website. They put up all the declarations from, you know, jurors. They put family photos. They put declarations from his family member uh, from his family members. You know, Brandon Bernard had two daughters um, who are now grown. He had a brother and a sister. He has a mom. You know, they talk about. Um, what it means for them uh, to have him in their life and why they don't want him to be executed. Um, and then they had, you know, uh, declarations from experts, uh, you know, addressing these uh, issues of, of um, you know, the evidence that was withheld at trial, addressing uh, the issue of his youth, um, which is a whole other very significant legal factor here, um, having to do with, you know, culpability uh, and, and brain development, essentially the fact that, you know, teenagers, even those who are 18, 19, and going into your 20s, your brain isn't fully developed. Uh, you are less culpable even for the, 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 the worst crimes. And that's not, you know, someone's opinion. That's, those are, you know, uh, biological findings that have also um, convinced the courts, including the Supreme Court, to, to basically say that, you know, youth are not, um, should not be eligible for, for, for the death penalty. Um, so all of that information was put on this website that also, you know, was, was, um, sent around to journalists and, and Brandon's legal team was able to get a significant amount of coverage. Um, and, and that 
uh, spread the word. <laughs> and I remember, I think it was a Saturday after Thanksgiving, maybe around then, uh, going to Twitter and seeing that Kim Kardashian was tweeting about Brand Bernard's case. And it's like, once that happens, you know, uh, it's it's just gonna yeah. kind of go 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 nuts from there. So I don't know how you all uh, first heard about it, but chances are it was some sometime in that kind of period where suddenly it was kind of snowballing and more people were finding out about this uh, about this um, looming execution. Yeah. One thing that really stood out to me, and I think you had reported on it as well, and you just mentioned it yeah. here, was some of the jurors have since had a change of heart. And and partially due to, you know, what some described as uh, ineffective counsel. Uh, additionally, just, you know, in retrospect, the guy, one of the jurors came to regret it uh, based on, you know, just Christian values that he had held dear, um, you know, yeah. empathy, redemption, forgiveness, those sorts of things. Uh, but also, like uh, some coverage mentioned it, he had an all-white jury. Is that right? Uh, Brandon Bernard didn't actually. Um, the 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 man who was executed before him, um, Orlando Hall, he uh, was a black man tried in Texas and did have an all-white jury. Um, and that's <laughs> um, th- that case. It's different in some ways from Brandon Bernard's and Christopher Vialva's because uh, it seems fairly clear that Orlando Hall did have a direct role in in what's like a truly grisly abduction, rape and murder of a 16 year old girl named Lisa Renee. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, no matter what you think about the facts of that case and, uh, and, and the role that he had versus, say, what Brandon Bernard did, um, it is pretty shocking when you look at what happened with his jury. And not only not only was he tried by an all white jury, um, one of the issues that was never properly litigated in his case is the fact that one of the prosecutors in his case um, came out of the Dallas County DA's office where he had um, essentially been trained to, as many prosecutors were at that time, trained to exclude uh, black jurors um, inappropriately from from jury pools. So, so Orlando Hall, yeah, was tried. It, it was it was around the same era. The Orlando Hall case was a few years before. It was actually the first federal death penalty case um, to come out uh, to come out of the crime bill, essentially. Um, very high profile also. Um, so, um, but but that's not to say that there wasn't, uh, you know, racism in the jury selection in Brandon Bernard's and Christopher Vialva's case. There was actually only one black juror in that case. Um, and, and if you read my story at The Intercept, I mean, one of the more surreal moments I had reporting out this, this, this story was where I reached the, um, not the original trial prosecutor, but the, the U.S. attorney at the time in, um, in Waco, who oversaw broadly this, this trial. And he talked about how he had had a very active role in, in selecting the jury in Brandon Bernard and Christopher Vialva's case and, and talked about how he didn't remember a whole lot of details from this case, but he did remember that uh, there was a black juror on the jury and that he had actually supported including this black juror. Um, and a lot of people thought he was crazy because, you know, you're never supposed to include a, a black juror, you know, in jury selection, that that's just not supposed to happen. And he was essentially giving himself a whole lot of credit <laughs> for the fact that he saw fit to put a black juror on, on, on the jury. Um, and uh, that was really revealing in its own way. You know, it's it's it was sort of an open secret that, like, you know, if you're trying a black man and trying to sentence him to death in this era, it's, it's, it's certainly preferable to get an all white jury or mostly white jury. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I think um I think another reason that this like spoke to people so much is because just going back to the fundamental idea of like what what the purpose of prison is supposed to be, which is supposed to be rehabilitation. 
and you see so often in, in America's prison system, which is so fucking barbaric at times, uh, this often gets lost and it doesn't really accomplish this goal. And then so I think people take a look at this case where it seems like there was sort of a rehabilitative uh, process that was happening and that this man had really come to terms with the things that he had done and did show remorse and had dedicated himself to being better and and learning from it and and helping other at-risk youth and doing kind of doing all the things that that the idea of prison is really supposed to do it becoming this like model inmate and never having any infractions or anything like that and just the fact that none of that had any, any actual impact on the ultimate result of his case, which is that being put to death. Um, I think that was really kind of, um, that was really difficult for people to accept. You know what I mean? Because no, I don't think anyone would argue that the the facts of the case, which you laid out uh, in detail, are pretty horrific. Um, and that he obviously was, even if it was peripherally involved, or whether you'd say he was, uh, you know, the, the degrees with which you think that he was responsible for that, you know, he was involved in this really terrible crime. Um, but that's the, that's it. It just, it seemed like he had made a conscious effort to uh, improve and grow and to like it, it was like an example of the prison system kind of accomplishing what it's meant to um and then when you see that have actually no impact in the in the ultimate result i think it's it's really upsetting to kind of see that uh, see that play out yeah i mean in in this case it's like well first of all it's important and i think you know it, it needs to be said that i mean this kind of re rehabilitative mission of prison is, is, is a myth. And it's, it's a great idea in theory, but I'm not even sure that, um, I'm not even sure that people who defend the death penalty or defend prisons at this point, um, believe in the idea that, you know, we're going to improve the people who, who, who are sent there. Um, you know, the death penalty is, is the most sort of permanent and punitive uh, punishment. You know, there's, there's, there's no rehabilitation, you know, for, for people on death row and any, any, any rehabilitation that does take place, if we want to use that word, is really in spite of the system and not because of the system. And one of the most eye-opening things about reporting these cases has been to get to know, get to correspond with and get to know a little bit some of the guys who, who um, are on federal death row in Terre Haute. And it was really sort of sad um, to correspond with a number of them in the run-up to Brandon Bernard's execution date, where several of them were holding out real hope because, you know, as they said it to me, you know, he doesn't belong there. Um, they don't consider him, not only do they consider him not to have been, you know, particularly culpable in his crime, um, but they, 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 he was clearly a person who didn't pose a danger to anybody. Uh, and, you know, th there's all kinds of people on federal death row. Uh, a number of people have severe mental illness. I mean, there's a lot of problems with, you know, all of these cases. But but Brandon Bernard w had a reputation as a guy who, you know, <laughs> was a good member of the community, you know, was uh, a sort of generally well-liked, um, didn't cause anyone harm, didn't stir up trouble. Um, yeah, model inmate, as, as you say. And so I think that there was a sense that he might get clemency and 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 one of the sobering things this weekend has been you know after arriving home and these guys they were on lockdown for these last two executions when they got off lockdown yesterday i had a number of emails from them essentially you know talking about how fucked up it is that brandon bernard was executed and and i think that the sort of subtext to a lot of these these messages is that you know if he can't get clemency if his life isn't seen as you know worth sparing then then there's not hope for for anybody else um so so it's 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 a it's pretty devastating i guess i've been doing this work long enough that i i wasn't quite as optimistic you know i mean there's been sort of flashpoints in my own um history of covering and uh 
paying attention to these issues where there were times that I thought people who would be spared were not spared. And I feel like I learned those lessons a long time ago. And I don't know if you all are familiar with the case of Stan Tukey Williams, for example, in California. That was one years ago at this point where I really believed that the work he had done after going to death row should have mattered and would have mattered. And I remember when they executed Stan Tukey Williams in California, being quite devastated and but also sort of learning an important lesson, which is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do with your life on death row and how much good work you do. The, you know, the logic of this punishment is that there is no rehabilitation and, you know, uh, the state will will kill yeah. you uh, no matter what. Yeah, this is I think this is a, an overall narrative and theme with just with the criminal justice system overall. And at the worst case, you know, people on death row never get any sympathy or empathy or any room for growth at all but even people who who you know are, are charged with lesser offenses same thing even people who go through the system serve their time and this is you know much different but even recently uh i saw michael vick is being discussed or has been picked to to do like color commentary uh on uh one of the networks for 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 upcoming football games and there was somebody who had just was getting pummeled for saying, well, he should only be able to do it if he donates part of his salary uh, to animal welfare organizations. And that, while that, that might be a noble effort, it kind of underscores like this is a guy who went to prison for a few years mm-hmm. and served his time and just did, you know, the system, quote, worked. And still yeah. people aren't letting him move past it. So what what do people want? Like, what do you want exactly if you're still upset by this? And this is and in worst case instances, it's people who are convicted uh, and sentenced to death row who never get a chance. It's just even at, at the age of 18 as an accomplice, you're done. Sorry. Even if your brain hasn't fully developed, it's over for you. That is so deeply unjust, in my opinion. I, I cannot believe we live in this fucking society. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I guess the death penalty is the kind of, I think of it as the kind of poison tip of the spear that, that, that is the kind of broader system that we've built. We've built, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of this marginal issue to a lot of people, I think, because it affects a relatively small percentage of the people who are, you know, part of this monstrous system of mass incarceration, but it's got, it's kind of also the purest distillation of the logic behind this system, uh, which is that, I mean, in this country, we are, we are unbelievably punitive and cruel, you know, and I think the coronavirus pandemic has really has has brought that to the center in a way that's really important for those people who are at least willing to pay attention. You know, yeah. How much punishment is enough? Like what, what does it take for, for people to feel satisfied that that, you know, quote, justice has been done? It's not there is no I mean, Brand Bernard's execution has not made us safer. Um, I. I I will say, you know, the, the the Bagley, Todd and Stacey Bagley's family did, this surprised me actually, did come out after his execution and talk to the press in Terre Haute. Um, it's hard to know exactly who all was there. It was a very large group of people. Um, and, you know, they did what victims' families often do. Um, they, they, they talked about how this is going to bring some closure. They talked about how they've been waiting a long time. They thanked the Trump administration. Um, but the reality is, you know... Brandon Bernard did not have to die for them to kind of get that kind of closure. I mean, it's not my role to say how victims should grieve and how the, you sure. know what, what yeah. should be justice for victims' families. But there are a whole lot of people serving life sentences, serving life without parole sentences in crimes that are as bad, if not worse, than what Brandon Bernard did. Um, and the difference is, you know, 
the victims' families in those cases um, are not waiting for decades, you know, to, for, for the outcome, you know, the, the kind of form of justice they've been promised to be delivered. Um, you know, a, a lot of times I've interviewed victims' family members who talk about how the death penalty hasn't brought closure because for the most part, you know, a lot of people end up just sort of languishing on death row. The execution never comes. So, and instead they're kind of left waiting for, for this closure that, 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 that never is sort of delivered upon. Um, and one of the most- Well, and I imagine there's this, there's this like appeals process as well that could probably re-traumatize these, these people over and over again when they have to keep reliving these, these horrific incidents while this, uh, this process plays out too, oh, uh, I imagine. yeah, absolutely. One of, one of the, 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 the most memorable interviews I did when I first went to Terre, or one of my first trips in Terre Haute in July, I met with um, a woman whose sister, who, a woman who lives in Terre Haute, whose sister had been abducted and murdered. I mean, brutally tortured and murdered um, back in the eighties. This was like probably Terre Haute's one of Terre Haute's most famous um, crimes. And the the man in that case, uh, he was convicted and sentenced to death and he was eventually executed and and the mother of the victim in this case became a big outspoken pro-death penalty activist she used to come and stand sort of in opposition to anti-death penalty activists when they were agitating around the federal death penalty um and she died i believe in 2016 the mother of this victim and so i reached out to um her surviving daughter um and i can't remember exactly how i found her but i but i asked her if she would meet with me and we met in this park sort of socially distanced and I didn't know what she was going to say. I, I wanted to know her thoughts on the death penalty, her thoughts on, you know, what it had meant for the for the person who killed her sister to be executed, you know, whether, whether it had brought her any closure. And what she said, she, she said that execution did nothing for me. And she said that, you know, she feels a little bit guilty talking about it now, but her mother is gone and she feels like she can speak freely. And she talks about how, you know, she needed it, it wasn't healing for her uh, to have this person put to death. Um, by the time he was executed, she had gotten into her own legal troubles. She was she was had problems with addiction, um, with drugs. Um, and now today she works in a prison and works with people who are incarcerated and talks about how, you know, she sees up close every single day what people actually need to be able to live um, and kind of, you know, improve their lives and how, you know, for her healing, the execution did nothing. Uh, and in fact, it just kind of, it took her own kind of uh, healing process. Uh, and, and in her case, it meant forgiving the man who did this to her sister. Um, and so, you know, she wasn't willing to sort of take one side or another and say, I'm anti-death penalty. But she did talk about how not only did the execution do nothing for her, that, but that, as you say, every time this case was back in the news, every time there was an appeal for this guy, and actually every time, you know, now that these federal executions were restarting, the local paper was talking about famous cases in Vigo County, you know, uh, that led to uh, the death to, to, you know, an execution here in Indiana, and there's her sister's case, and there are all the brutal details of her sister's, you know, a murder and the way in which she had to sort of relive that trauma again and again, because it was a death penalty case. Um, whereas, you know, if he had been given a life sentence, she could have moved on with her life a long time before. Um, so it doesn't always, um, you know, I get a lot of nasty emails and messages of people who like need me to know just how brutal and awful and violent and cruel these, these crimes were. Um, which is a little weird because I mean I write these articles and I know I mean I've read the rec I've read about these cases it's not like I'm an unaware but I don't really think it does justice it's not necessarily justice for victims' families to be constantly parading out the worst trauma of their lives um, in their gruesome detail um, I don't really think that that's a way of honoring victims either. 
Yeah, and I think that's important as well to point out, which is that, you know, if you're if if the abolition of the death penalty is something that you're interested in or something you you support, I mean, for for every a situation like Brandon Bernard, where he's this kind of ideal prisoner uh, and someone who did make an effort to be better. And there's all these extenuating factors. There's people like uh, Dylan Roof, mm-hmm. a white supremacist mass murderer who's on death row. And it's like it at that point, you're not really making a moral judgment about how horrible these crimes were. Like there, there are people certainly in prison and on death row that have indeed committed horrible crimes. Uh, but the question is whether or not you feel like the state has the right uh to execute these people and like if you don't if you don't agree that it does then that applies to every case and not just the people that that you think deserve it or do not deserve it you know yeah exactly i mean i <laughs> the, the day after so brandon bernard was executed on on thursday night um and at there's this dollar general that sits across from the penitentiary which has become the that's where activists come to do their vigil and to do their protest and um yeah, i've gone to the dollar general every every time um to you know report and, and talk to the activists there and and this time there were it was a pretty big group and there were a lot of people that hadn't been there before and it was a testament to you know how much brandon bernard's case had kind of gotten out there um and you know then we were back there the very next night because the trump administration was executing alfred bourgeois um and these two cases i mean could not be more different in when it comes to the kind of nature and involvement of the crime. Alfred de Bourgeois, I did not research a report on his case. So, you know, I'll, I'll just summarize it by saying that he was convicted of brutally torturing and murdering his two-year-old child. Um, you know, in the kind of scheme of things, when you think about like what counts as quote, the worst of the worst, you know, that's the kind of crime that I think most people associate with the kinds of people who are on death row. Um, uh, you know, the fact that he was executed the night after Brandon Bernard, um, and when you look at their their roles in these crimes, I mean, it really encapsulates what we often refer to as the kind of arbitrariness of the death penalty, you know, that there's not really any rhyme or reason that the idea that these are only, this is a punishment only reserved for the worst of the worst, um, is an absolute fallacy and myth. It just is, that is just not um, who was on death row, and it's not a consistent in that way. So, um, you know, Alfred Bourgeois did not, there were still activists, uh, you know, the, the people who were always there at the Dollar General, they were still there. Um, but, you know, my, my tweets about that execution weren't going viral in the same way that Brandon Bernard, you know, my tweets about Brandon Bernard, um, there was not a lot of outcry. And, and there are a lot of people who are like, ah, I'm okay with this one. Well, if you're okay with that one, then you're probably not actually against the death penalty, right? Because <laughs> you, you have to kind of apply it across the board. Yeah, I, it's, it's good that people are... <laughs> aware of it for whatever reason but like we have to commit collectively to go beyond just kind of like the daily zeitgeist one or like just the trendy one to latch on to because this is a problem across the board we've got 20 some states that still have capital punishment but there's a growing movement to get people to recognize how cruel and barbaric it is and i think that kind of empathy and understanding around how difficult these circumstances can be and maybe an application of sort of uh you know rehabilitative measures we talked uh, about how you know, even just avoiding uh, citations or violations while in while in prison, uh, demonstrating personal growth, and even just an understanding that when people do things when they're 18, 17, 18, it certainly isn't reflective of who they're going to grow to be, especially as men, if their brains aren't fully developed. Uh, with baked within that, in this this understanding and empathy, 
I think there is, as Rob said before we started recording, there's there's space for conversations around uh, defunding the police and reallocating those funds toward uh, social welfare programs, uh, mental health uh, programs at the state and city level, and you know, treatment alternative like like treatment and rehabilitation as an alternative to incarceration. And, you know, whether it's like through drug court programs or intensive outpatient or even inpatient counseling and therapy, uh, these types of programs, if we invest in them, can have long-term uh, positive benefits that would also reduce uh, recidivism. Uh, Liliana, what are what are some of the, the efforts being made on, on these fronts? Um, you know, I feel like I'm not I, – I... I'm not the, I don't have the expertise to really speak to that kind of broadly. Um, I will say, I will say that the fact the, the the nature of the conversation we're having right now has really shifted pretty significantly. Um, I've been kind of amazed actually at how much people have been willing to kind of approach this issue uh, differently. I, 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 I'm sort of thinking out loud right now, but, but, you know, for a long time, one of the issues I had with people within the death penalty abolitionist movement was that um, they were advancing a strategy, uh, largely a sort of state-by-state -state abolition strategy that hinged on the idea that life without parole was the kind of default, appropriate moral default alternative to the death penalty. And I, I think it was like 15 years ago that I remember, you know, kind of having arguments with other activists about whether or not, you know, we're painting ourselves into a kind of political corner by advocating something like LWAP, um, which, you know, may not be a premeditated state san sanctioned murder in the way that the death penalty is, but which clearly kind of uh, does not allow people for any kind of um, redemption, rehabilitation, all the things that we've been discussing. And, and that was like a fairly marginal view at the time. And I think we've arrived at a place now, at least I saw during the primary uh, earlier this year where, you know, people are not taking for granted that life without parole is an appropriate um, alternative to the death penalty. People are talking about, you know, restorative justice or alternatives to incarceration or, you know, and, and I think I'm not exactly sure sort of why that is now. I think there's sort of, it's generational. I think we've moved really, you know, we've made some really significant advancements in terms of the way in which people approach carceral issues. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have, I don't even know exactly what the parameters are around sort of alternatives to sentencing uh, right now, but the fact that we're even able to have that there's space for that conversation is is, is really important. Um, I, I guess I did want to speak to you know one of the things that I think about when you're describing that what could replace some of these you know sort of punitive systems and and what kind of a difference would it make? I mean, when it comes to sort of what we know is public safety, you know, and and how we can prevent certain kinds of crimes. I mean, one thing that you learn when you cover the death penalty and you get to know sort of individual cases, um, so many of these cases, almost to a one, you know, if you are willing to look past the crime itself and look at uh, the background of the person who was condemned and sort of how they might have gotten to this place where they carried out an act of extreme violence, um, almost every time you will find that there was um, early childhood, you know, uh, trauma, abuse, um, often sexual abuse, that there's mental illness, that there's generational trauma, that there's uh, poverty, neglect, all of these kinds of factors um, that, that oftentimes go into um, 
really devastating a person's development uh, and, and the people who go on to, oftentimes to commit these kinds of crimes. Um, you know, in many of these cases, uh, they were failed at various levels by their parents, by uh, various agents of the state, by the educational system, by all the kinds of all the ways in which we fail to um, care for the least vulnerable uh, or the most vulnerable among us. Um, you know, that 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 history is, is always at the heart, almost always at the heart of these cases. Um, and there's a, a number of cases that stick in my mind um, from reporting on this over the years, uh, where you read a clemency application, where you read some of the mitigation investigation that was done, or that should have been done, that was done after the fact. Um, and you find all the ways in which, you know, a person just sort of never had a chance, you know, didn't have a normal childhood, didn't have, you know, was sort of, uh, living in in um, circumstances that that no child should have to endure um, and and that's kind of the tragedy at the heart of so many of these cases um, because uh, then of course when um, people who are sort of um, denied um, a, a dignified life you know growing up when they go out and, and and victimize others that's where the full weight of the state or or in these cases the federal government uh, comes down and and decides that their life uh, isn't worth um, anything and and I think it's really tragic um, that that we don't think about it sort of you know in, in that kind of broader sense yeah and the the discrepancy that I always find really frustrating when we had these conversations, um, you know, about the death penalty, um, which is how, you know, obviously, and this is rightfully, people focus on this this very specific process of the U.S. death penalty where people are given trials and convicted and this appeals process goes on and there's, you know, it's focused on this very specific process. Uh, but meanwhile, there's still this kind of like unquestioned practice of police officers being able to go out there and just like kill with almost total impunity mm -hmm. anytime they feel that their life is threatened yeah. um, and how that should all be kind of bundled in the same because into the same kind of conversation because that is a that is uh, the de the death penalty like this we're giving police officers um, just the 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 um, ability to basically become judge jury and executioner in these moments and just like looking at the the, num the figures here like in 2019 um, there's a total of 22 death row inmates uh, who were all executed. Um, and in the same year, 1,004 people were killed by police in fatal police shootings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just that's the kind of figure that I find really shocking where, uh, you know, there's this specific conversation around the death penalty, which is very important. But no one seems like to, the idea that, you know, you don't believe police should have the ability to do that or they should be reined in in some way or that should be. Uh, something should be done to address that is seen as being like divisive or, you know, uh, uh, somehow out of bounds or something like that. But that that I find that really kind of shocking and upsetting. Yeah. You know, I think that that connection that you're making, um, I, I was actually uh, about a month ago, I moderated a panel um, where where the kind of uh, theme was was making that that specific connection, you know, sort of whether you're talking about executions in the streets at the hands of police or executions, these kind of highly ritualistic executions at, uh, you know, in a, in a death chamber at the hands of the federal government, that this is, that these are of a piece, that this is state violence that we have to kind of um, approach as a whole. Um, and that can be a very useful way to think about it. It can also be very overwhelming, you know, and I think it's, but I think I think that more people are are willing to make that connection when 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 the racism of these systems is laid bare for all to see and you see it in a case like Brandon Bernard's or you see it I mean one place where I did see activists making this connection this feels like a long time ago now but when the state of Georgia executed um Troy Davis who was you know 
probably one of the most famous uh, death penalty cases, you know, in sort of recent memory. Um, there was a real outcry, not only from sort of the abolitionist movement, um, and, and in this case, because of his innocence, um, but but it was kind of the earliest days of Black Lives Matter. And I remember that um, in New York and in other places, the Troy Davis case became kind of a rallying cry for those um, who were who, who immediately saw that connection, uh, who instinctively understood that you know Troy Davis's life um, and 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 his death at the hands of the state was was going was connected to to cases like Eric Garner's, uh, you know that that this is all part of this same monstrous murderous system, and so so yeah, I think sort of um, if anything, it has felt like the death penalty um, it doesn't have the same kind of um, resonance for a lot of people, I think, because it does feel sort of like, oh, it's this weird system over here that, by the way, is also sort of a relic of the past. I mean, the death penalty is not what it was in the 90s. Um, new death sentences, um, executions, uh, they're all going down every single year. And so um, I think sometimes we have these like really destabilizing reminders, like the Brandon Bernard case, that's like, oh, yeah, the system is still with us for all of its, you know, disgusting racist history and roots and, and lynching and everything but the the fight against you know police violence and police killings um i feel like is is one that um a lot more people are engaged in uh and and i think that that's a good thing <laughs> um and i think that those connections need to continue to be made um so hopefully i mean hopefully people will continue to pay attention to these particular executions but also not just see them as sort of this trump this project of the Trump era um, yeah. and, uh, and, and the Trump bar era, you know, if you read any of the stories that I've written over the past several months, I mean, I always point out because it's important that this is a product of, you know, decades of bipartisan policy and Joe Biden is, is, is you know, the fact that he is now inheriting the system. Um, there needs to be a, a whole lot of pressure uh, on him to, um, you know, put his money where his mouth is. And, and if he really claims to oppose the death penalty, you know, I, I, I would like to see more than just kind of a moratorium on executions. I think that people have to hold him to account um, on whether he's going, his, his, his DOJ is going to seek new death sentences on whether they're going to grant clemency to, to the people who remain on death row. There's a lot of, of, of questions, um, but I'd really like to see something where, you know, uh, the Biden administration comes in and, and people don't immediately forget about um, federal death row and, and all the anger and outrage that that bubbled up around the Brandon Bernard case. <laughs> I mean, he's cla he claims he, he, he will work to uh, uh, eliminate the death penalty through the legislative process. But I mean, it's, that could go uh, a bunch of different ways. And, you know, part of that's control of the Senate. Part of that's also just the political will or even priority to do that. So um, you know, I, I personally, I'm just kind of not, not super optimistic this will happen. Um, it would make for a good, uh, you know, uh, change from his past stances on, on criminal justice and his work in that regard, uh, you know, the crime bill and things like that, but just kind of waiting and waiting and seeing, which I think most people are doing. Um, well, and just also with that leaked audio that came out of that meeting with uh, black civil rights leaders the other day also Jesus doesn't give me a ton Christ. of hope. The way he's like uh, <laughs> yeah. paternalistically like lecturing these civil rights leaders and the way that he's already basically accepted the orthodoxy that that any mention of defunding the police was the was the reason that, uh, that you know, the Democratic Party uh, did not you know uh, meet expectations in this recent election doesn't give me a ton of hope that he's going to uh, give in to much of the pressure from from the activist side on that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, no, I, yeah, it, it does not, <laughs> it does not inspire confidence at all. Um, I, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the fact is Biden doesn't need, like he could, he's not going to do this, but he, with the stroke of a pen, he could grant clemency to every single person on federal death row and commute all those sentences to life without parole. He could do that on day one if he wanted to. I don't believe he wants to. Um, it's something that a lot of um, legal advocates tried sort of behind the scenes to convince Obama to do. Um, and, uh, you know, Obama deserves a fair amount of criticism uh, for his role in setting up um people on federal death row for this execution spree. There were a number of clemency petitions, including Brandon Bernard's, in front of the Obama DOJ that he failed to act on. Um, and, you know, that's how we kind of get to where we are. And so, um, you know, Obama never claimed to be against the death penalty. Uh, that's something I actually criticized him for <laughs> while he was running, uh, you know, for, for office. Um, and it's another testament to how far we've moved on this issue. I mean, Hillary Clinton also didn't oppose the death penalty. I mean, this is the first election we have seen, presidential election we have seen that I can remember where all the Democratic candidates were like, well, of course I oppose the death penalty. That is a really significant change from, you know, the fairly recent past. Um, but, you know, when it comes to Biden, I don't believe that that's going to mean he's suddenly going to be up for, you know, sort of mass commutations. Um, but that's what I think it would take, you know, and, and actually, frankly, the easiest way that he could deliver on this supposed opposition um, to the death penalty. Uh, if he really means what he says, he could he could do that, you know, uh, immediately. Um, and the fact that I don't think there's any chance of that, um, <laughs> I, you know, it's kind of it's kind of par for the course with Biden. Um, this is who we got. Um, so uh, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that's certainly that that conversation. It was great to, to have you on the show. Uh, Liliana, that certainly went to some kind of dark places, but it was very <laughs> yeah. interesting to hear from you and, and your perspective on this is very much, uh, very important, I think, for people to hear. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I know it's, it is a really dark um, subject, but I, I think it's important for people to know what's being done in our names. And uh, I'm just, I'm just glad that, that um, people are aware that it's happening now. Um, so yeah, thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, usually, we, we make a habit of asking our guests about gaming, but <laughs> I feel not like the, I feel like there's the, not there's not the they're not found like an appropriate way to like slip that in and throughout this conversation. Yeah, it's but, hard uh, to work that in. It's true. Yeah, uh, yeah. and you know, I, I, I <laughs> I'm not the ideal <laughs> guest on that front. Um, but yeah. Okay. So Marky Down is not a gamer. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's not, the main takeaway I think that we can take away from this. Okay. Yeah, revealed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right well thank you very much yeah thanks we really appreciate it and we will uh we'll talk to you soon okay thanks guys thank you for listening to the insurgents please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps and please remember to leave a review on apple Podcasts. it's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot but please again don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban, so please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye. <laughs>